from coast to coast to coast. You're listening to Terra Informa. You're listening, You're listening. You're listening. You're listening to Terra Informa. The month of June has wrapped up, and somehow the year is halfway over. This week, we are rounding up some of the environmental news headlines that you may have missed over the past month. My name is Hannah Cunningham, and I will be your host for the next half hour of environmental news, stories, and ideas. Before we begin this episode, we would like to acknowledge that this episode was produced in Treaty 6 territory in Meskwetsiwiskaigen, Beaver Hills House, or so-called Edmonton. We are broadcasting from unrecognized Papas Chase Cree territory. The Papas Chase Cree were displaced following consistent efforts from local officials like Frank Oliver to discredit the legitimacy of their treaty right to this territory and to reserve number 136, now South Edmonton. Not confined to history, this region is also the present homelands of many First Peoples who build their lives here, pursue livelihoods, and gather together, including Cree, Métis, Blackfoot, and Dene. Wherever you're listening from, we ask you to consider whose version of history informs your understanding of the land you are on. This week, we are catching you up on some of the environmental news headlines that you might have missed over the past month. For our first story, here's the lowdown on Canada's decision to ban select single-use plastics. On June 20th, the Canadian press shared the announcement that the federal government will be banning companies from importing, making, selling, and exporting various kinds of single-use plastics in several phases between the end of this year and 2025. This ban was expected in 2019, but the required scientific assessment was delayed due to COVID-19. The assessment was finalized in late 2021, and six months later, the federal government listed plastics as toxic under the Canadian Environmental Protection Act. A group of plastic producers are suing the government on the toxic designation given to plastic, and that case is expected to be heard later this year. But back to the headline... The types of single-use plastics included in this ban are plastic bags, takeout containers, plastic straws, stir sticks, cutlery, and six-pack rings. Companies will be banned from importing or making these plastic items by the end of this year, will be banned from selling them by the end of next year, and will be banned from exporting them by the end of 2025. 
These particular single-use plastic items were chosen because the federal government stated that, according to the data available to them, these items are the most harmful plastic substances. This decision is a step towards the Liberal government's target of halting the flow of plastic waste from ending up in landfills or as litter by 2030. France is a step ahead of Canada in terms of curbing plastic waste production, having banned most of the single-use plastic items on Canada's list last year. France has also begun phasing out other types of plastic to be banned, including plastic packaging for more than 30 different kinds of fruits and vegetables, and it is also in the process of banning plastic wrap for newspapers, non-biodegradable plastic in tea bags, and the free plastic toys handed out in kids' meals at fast food restaurants. According to the CBC, federal data shows that in 2019, 1.5 billion plastic grocery bags, 4.5 billion pieces of plastic cutlery, 3 billion stir sticks, 4.8 billion straws, 183 million six-pack rings, and 805 million takeout containers were sold in Canada. The CBC article also states that the federal government is also intending to enact standards to force companies to use recycled plastic in a move to increase recycling. Olivier Bourbeau, Vice President of Federal Affairs at Restaurants Canada, commented on the need for the government to ensure that alternatives to banned items are readily available. According to Bourbeau, supply chain issues have resulted in shipments of the non-plastic alternatives that restaurants use for takeout containers only being half fulfilled. He wants the government to work with suppliers to make sure that they can meet demand for restaurants in Canada. Some provinces are moving faster than the federal government to reduce plastic consumption. Newfoundland and Labrador, Prince Edward Island, and Nova Scotia have already banned plastic shopping bags. Regina, Victoria, and Montreal are all cities that have also banned plastic bags. Even some retailers have taken the bag bans into their own hands, including Sobeys and Walmart. Loblaws has recently announced that it will ban plastic bags by 2023. For our next story, Terra Informa's resident salmon reporter, Sarah Chitsas, tells us about high levels of sea lice in a BC salmon farm and the extension of fish farm licenses in BC. It's been a big month for salmon on the coast of BC. On June 13th, the Narwhal reported on BC salmon farm sea lice levels. Two fish farms owned by Cermak, which is a major global salmon farming company, were found to have more than the allowable level of sea lice on their fish during critical wild fish migration. Sea lice are tiny crustaceans that are indigenous to the coast of BC. 
Sea lice pose high risks to juvenile salmon because juvenile salmon do not have fully developed scales, and the sea lice can eat through their skin, making the fish vulnerable to infection, killing them, or making them slow enough that they become easy prey for predators. Although sea lice are a natural part of BC's coastal environment, the increase in numbers of sea lice over time have caused concern among environmentalists and conservationists in regard to the health and safety of wild salmon. Fish farms house high numbers of adult fish, which can increase the likelihood of sea lice being transferred to wild juvenile fish swimming past the farms. When licenses for farm fish are issued under the Fisheries Act in Canada, there are regulations that must be met in the license for sea lice, including how many sea lice are acceptable in fish farms during the different phases in fish migration cycles. Fisheries and Oceans Canada, also called the DFO, is the regulatory body for the Fisheries Act. The DFO performs audits in fish farms to ensure that these regulations set out in fish farming licenses are being followed. During an audit at Sir Max Bodden Point Farm on March 2nd, the DFO found that the sea lice levels were about five times higher than the legal limit for the season in fish migration patterns. By June 6th, Cermak reported that the lice levels at Bottom Point were back down within the limit. Sea lice are one piece of the conversation about fish farms on the coast of BC that has been making news this year, leading us to the second update on BC's salmon. According to the TAI, 109 open net pen Atlantic salmon farm licenses on the coast of BC were set to expire on June 30th. Fisheries and Oceans Canada Minister Joyce Murray announced on June 22nd that 79 of these fish farm licenses are being renewed for two years. Previously, these licenses were for six years. Minister Joyce Murray also announced that during this two-year period, the government will be consulting with First Nations, environmental groups, communities, and industry to find a path forward for transitioning away from open net pen fish farms on the coast of BC. Currently excluded from these renewed licenses are the 19 salmon farms in the Discovery Islands that have their licenses up for renewal as well. The DFO will announce a decision regarding licensing for these fish farms in the Discovery Islands in January of 2023. This will allow time for the DFO to consult with local First Nations and license holders to make an informed decision. In the meantime, Atlantic salmon open at Penn fish farms in the Discovery Islands won't be able to restock fish. The news of the licensing decisions made by Joyce Murray seems to have positive reception overall. Although having renewed fish farm licenses means that the transition away from open net pen aquaculture on the coast of BC won't be immediate, it is encouraging to see that the DFO is working towards developing a transition plan that includes insight from First Nations and other local stakeholders in the aquaculture industry. This has been Sarah Chitzas for Terra Informa. Thanks, Sarah. Next up, here is a rundown on a recent United States Supreme Court decision on the Environmental Protection Agency's ability to regulate emissions.
On Thursday, June 30th, the United States Supreme Court made a decision regarding the ability of the Environmental Protection Agency, or EPA, to regulate greenhouse gas emissions. A coalition of 19 Republican-led states, along with coal producers, challenged the Environmental Protection Agency's authority to regulate greenhouse gases and stated that the Environmental Protection Agency had been granted, quote, unbridled power, end quote, to mandate emission standards, and stated that they would be impossible for coal producers and natural gas plants to meet. According to a CNN article, this decision is the latest part of a legal battle that has been going on since the 1970s, when the Clean Air Act provided the Environmental Protection Agency with the ability to regulate emissions. The Clean Air Act is a federal law that regulates air emissions from mobile sources, like vehicles, and stationary sources, like power plants. This law also authorizes the Environmental Protection Agency to establish national ambient air quality standards to protect public health and regulate the emissions of hazardous air pollutants. In the United States, about 25% of greenhouse gas emissions come from electricity generation, and coal powers around 20% of U.S. electricity. According to CNN, emissions from power plants in the United States rose last year for the first time since 2014, and that this increase was driven mostly by coal use. In 2016, an effort by the Obama administration to regulate emissions from coal-fired power plants, which introduced state-by-state carbon limitations and encouraged states to rely less on coal, was blocked by the Supreme Court. Later, in 2019, the Trump administration tried to ease the regulations limiting emissions. In 2021, a federal appeals court ruled against the Trump administration. It is this 2021 federal appeals court ruling that the Republican states and coal companies have challenged, which brought in a new review by the Supreme Court. A West Virginia attorney who led the coalition of states challenging the Environmental Protection Agency's ability to regulate emissions stated that, quote, how we respond to climate change is a pressing issue for our nation, yet some of the paths forward carry serious and disproportionate costs for states and countless other affected parties, end quote. In this ruling that took place on June 30th, the Supreme Court has suppressed the Environmental Protection Agency's ability to broadly regulate carbon emissions from existing power plants and has cut back on the Environmental Protection Agency's authority in general through invoking the, quote, major questions doctrine, end quote which will impact the federal government's ability to regulate in other areas of climate policy. Under this doctrine, the Environmental Protection Agency and other agencies won't be able to adopt rules that are, quote, transformational, end quote, to the economy, unless specifically authorized by Congress. Justice Elena Kagan, who voiced a statement from the dissenters of the ruling, said that, quote, the court's decision strips the Environmental Protection Agency of the power Congress gave it to respond to the most pressing environmental challenge of our time, end quote. She also stated that this decision translates to the court seeing itself as the decision maker for climate policy, instead of Congress or expert-led agencies. On the other hand, 
Justice Neil Gorsuch stated that, quote, while we all agree that administrative agencies have important roles to play in a modern nation, surely none of us wishes to abandon our republic's promise that the people and their representatives should have a meaningful say in the laws that govern them, end quote. The White House responded to this ruling by calling it a, quote, devastating decision from the court, end quote stating that this decision could risk damaging the ability of the United States to keep their air clean and to fight climate change. The response also noted that President Biden will, quote, not relent in using the authorities that he has under law to protect public health and tackle the climate change crisis, end quote. But how will this decision be fought? According to the CNN article, some analysts say that action from Congress is unlikely, as Democrats have been stuck in negotiations about climate and a clean energy bill for months, with some Republican senators refusing to budge. The article also states that, without big investments into clean energy, paired with strong emission-cutting regulations from the Environmental Protection Agency, it is very unlikely that President Biden will reach his climate goals, which include cutting United States emissions in half by 2030. If you are just tuning in, you are listening to Terra Informa, a production of CJSR 88.5 FM. In this week's episode, we are rounding up the environmental headlines that you may have missed from the month of June. So far, we have covered Canada's decision to ban several single-use plastics, the extending of fish farm licenses in British Columbia, and issues with sea lice in some of the fish farms, and the United States Supreme Court decision to reduce the ability of the Environmental Protection Agency to regulate greenhouse gas emissions. For our next headline, here is Hannah Skelding to explain to us what a carbon bomb is and how they might prove to be an issue for climate action. Hello Terra Informers, this is Hannah Skelding. Earlier this month, a journal article was published that blew up discussions about climate mitigation. The title of this paper is Carbon Bombs, Mapping Key Fossil Fuel Projects. It was published in the Energy Policy Journal. The author set out to identify the world's biggest fossil fuel extraction projects. These projects are labeled carbon bombs. So what is a carbon bomb? A carbon bomb is an oil and gas project or coal mine that will result in at least a billion tons of CO2 emissions over its lifetime. The journal article named 425 carbon bombs globally. The authors also named the countries in which these carbon bombs are located. According to their findings, the potential emissions from the carbon bombs combined would exceed the global carbon budget of 1.5 degrees Celsius by a factor of two. They argue that climate change mitigation needs to take carbon bombs into account, stating that we need to defuse these carbon bombs before they are able to produce more emissions.
there are only 10 countries with more than 10 carbon bombs. These countries are as follows. China, Russia, the United States, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Australia, India, Qatar, Canada, and Iraq. Together, these 10 countries account for three quarters of the emissions potential of all carbon bombs. The environment editor at The Guardian, Damian Carrington, spoke about carbon bombs on the CBC podcast Front Burner. Damian Carrington has published several articles on carbon bombs and also conducted his own investigation trying to uncover data surrounding carbon bombs. The team at The Guardian quickly realized that while major oil and gas firms had a lot of projects on the way, the data on the scale of the problem was incredibly hard to locate. Damien mentions that many people are surprised to hear that Canada is home to 12 carbon bombs, since Canada has a reputation of being a climate leader in the global community. Another country that Damien mentioned surprised people was the United States. The U.S. is home to 28 carbon bombs, and there are many more in the works. Domestic drilling in the U.S. is only expected to increase in the aftermath of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. One study reported by Nina Lakani and Oliver Millman even goes as far to say that the new fracking projects in the U.S. will release four times more than the entire world produced last year. Carrington and his team at The Guardian believe that while fossil fuel companies understand the urgency of reducing emissions, individual companies are too committed to change the course on their own. Each company is already highly committed to their carbon bombs and are operating as if they will be the company that is the exception to the rule and will be able to continue extracting oil and gas. Damian Carrington says, quote, Somebody once made this nice analogy to me. It's like they are all on a train heading towards a broken bridge across a ravine, and they all say, I'll be the last one off. But if they all try to get off at the same time, they're going to get stuck in the door. End quote. So what does this all mean? The authors of the energy policy paper would argue that understanding the distribution of carbon bombs in the world provides insight into necessary policy changes. They suggest that there should be no new projects started from now on. Carbon bombs should be subject to early closure as we transition to more sustainable energy sources. And for the carbon bombs that are unable to be closed, they should enter harvest mode, which simply put is operating with no new investments. This journal article and the work of The Guardian provides us with resources that builds transparency around emissions and fossil fuel projects. Hopefully, moving forward, we will see these policy recommendations implemented in managing carbon bombs globally. Thanks, Hannah. For our final headline, here is Sonic Patel to share a troubling headline about how pollution may be shrinking well, penis sizes. Hello listeners, this is Sonic Patel. 
and I bring dire news of the impacts of chemical exposure and human health. And this one hits below the belt. Human chemical use and disposal can have disastrous effects, from poisoning our water, destroying our ecosystems, and littering our communities. One of the most concerning impacts of chemical exposure are to public health, and rapidly developing research is showing a chilling relationship, one between chemical pollution and smaller penis sizes. Dr. Shauna Swan's book Countdown outlines a link between pollution and erectile dysfunction, fertility decline, and smaller penises. And while this research may feel like an elaborate setup to a playground insult, the findings spell disastrous consequences for humanity. The culprit of the genitalia grief? Phthalates, a chemical used in plastic manufacturing because it improves the flexibility of a product. Phthalates are used in all sorts of domestic products, resulting in high human exposure to the substance. Because penis size is determined before birth, pregnant women exposed to these chemicals can affect the development of the babies, well, as D.H. Lawrence might call it, their John Thomas. As a result, these children may face reproductive issues in the future. The connection between chemical exposure and reproductive health is not unprecedented. A 2017 study by Dr. Swan found that chemical pollution can lead to male infertility and found an over 50% drop in sperm counts since 1973. Lower sperm counts are one of numerous reproductive issues being seen in research which include decreasing testosterone levels and higher rates of miscarriages, which Dr. Swan suggests could be related to chemical exposure, along with other factors like lifestyle choice. And if the current trend of reproductive issues continues, the human species could very quickly find itself on the brink of extinction, and future generations could find themselves on the short end of the stick well, shaft. Other research is increasingly finding relationships between chemicals, pollution, and human health issues. While this research isn't perfect, due to the complexity of factors that influence human development and changes in the environment in the last 30 years, research is increasingly finding hard evidence of the need to reduce our use of and storage of potent chemicals. And that's no fallacy. With literally the extinction of humanity on the brink, some regulators are responding. The European Union is restricting several phthalate substances and setting limits on others. In Canada, the government website claims that most phthalates are safe at the current level of exposure, though it has banned one type that was found dangerous. Concerned about chemicals and your reproductive bits? Here's some things that you can do. Avoid storing foods in plastic containers, and instead opt for glass, metal, or ceramics. And pay attention to the chemicals in your cosmetics and other products that you frequently use. This has been Sonic Patel. Thanks for listening.
Thanks, Sonic. That is all the time we have for this week. I've been your host, Hannah Cunningham. Thanks for listening. Terra Informa is a production of CGSR 88.5 FM, and all of our content is created by a team of volunteers. Thank you to everyone who contributed a story this week. If you like what you heard, check out our website, terrainforma.ca, for past episodes. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Terra Informa. If you want to give us a shout, our email address is terra at cjsr.com. Catch you next week, right here on Terra Informa. <laughs>